Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of realeverything.com. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Welcome back to The Whole View, episode 455. This week, as promised in last week's episode, we are coming back to some real-world data and updated vaccine studies and sharing that with you. As a reminder, we are covering these topics from a scientific perspective. We are not medical professionals. We're not giving you medical advice. Our goal is to help you be an informed and educated individual so that you can have the information that you need to make decisions. Um, But I would also say one of the things that I loved about last week's show is how we talked about um, how it's not just about you, but we're also making decisions that in fact, oh goodness, nope, they don't infect everybody. They impact everybody. (laughs) That's the goal is to not infect everybody. Um, And I think one of the the motivating factors for me with realizing um, that we are a health and wellness focused show, we have always talked about the health and safety of everyone on this show, um, is realizing that the decisions that I personally made, which we'll talk later on about the show, were also about making these decisions for others as well as myself. And so I love that is something that we can kind of bring into the show. And we can also talk about the studies and data that we're seeing because of that. And we've talked about um, vulnerable populations. This week, we're also going to talk about how there are, particularly women, are often not specifically studied. And so we're going to talk about some of the data and um, studies that are coming from the real world Um, information now from women who are pregnant or nursing that are choosing to get the vaccine and what we're learning from that because it's not a study someone's going to do. The government's not going to be like, hey, pregnant lady, let me put you in a study and see what happens because if the outcome isn't positive, that's not a good thing and we never want to test on that. But we can see now because it's happening um, what the outcomes are. So Maybe we just need to remind everybody of kind of the base level of information that we've already covered on previous shows. And so then much information. So much information because we're only going to cover the additional updated new information in this show. So we want to make sure that you're not jumping in first here uh, because then you would be missing out on all of the <laughs> education so we provided before. Um, so this definitely builds on, I mean, what's now five, this is now our sixth episode on the COVID-19 vaccines. I'm cautiously optimistic that this will be our last (laughs) and our, our ultimate episode on the COVID-19 vaccines. Um, we started in episode 440 where we, we, because we'd never really talked about vaccines on the podcast before we went all the way back to like the history of vaccines, the, um, actually very real statistics on vaccine-induced injury as also called sort of rare adverse events. Um, and then we talked about the scientific advances that led to the mRNA vaccine platform and the advantages of that platform um, in terms of, uh, you know, speed, efficacy, safety, all of the things that made these vaccines possible in such a short 
period of time. Um, in episode 441, we went through the very rigorously performed scientific studies um, looking at uh, evaluating the safety and efficacy of the Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna COVID-19 mRNA vaccines. We went through subgroup analysis. Uh, we really dove deep into that data. And then episodes 443 and 444 were sort of a combined uh, frequently asked questions and also addressing the most pervasive myths about the vaccines that are on the uh, internet um, that are really leading to vaccine hesitancy. Um, and then last week, we we finally <laughs> talked about the adenovirus platform vaccines, the Johnson & Johnson and the AstraZeneca. And we basically uh, compressed sort of what was in uh, the four shows on mRNA vaccines into, into one show. This week, we're going to be um, building on that sort of scientific foundation of information, looking at some of the really exciting uh, real-world data, as well as some of the studies that have been done um, that answer some questions that we weren't able to answer back when we did our first sort of first the first four parts of this series. Um, and the idea, you know, behind sort of covering this this sort of last bit of um, information is there's there's definitely some. Um, frequently asked questions that we're going to get to in this show, especially around pregnancy and lactation, that is really, really important for our listeners. But also, I think of sort of both the the person who um, listened to our previous shows and chose to go get vaccinated and is now trying to navigate uh, a sort of post-inoculation world like Stacy and I are um, and trying to make informed decisions about um, what sort of behaviors we're going to to do now, but also the person who um, is maybe listened to all of those shows and um, is still feeling hesitant, uh, still has questions, um, and I'm hoping that this, looking at the this data that we've sort of pulled together for this show, will be that you know final collection of information that uh, will help you make a you know make a decision. So um, I'm I'm hoping I'm hoping this will be like a great little way to sort of wrap up and really I I think end on a really optimistic positive note because the real world data is really exciting. I I've seen the notes. I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> I would also say that as more information comes out about what we know on my own personal experience that I feel comforted. So maybe we can we'll start by talking a little bit about what decision we each made and why and Again, we're not advising you to do the same, but we're explaining where we came from in our own decision-making processes. Uh, my case is a little unique because I've had COVID before. It's actually been almost a year exactly. It was late April 2020 mm -hmm. last year. And I have subsequently had long haulers since then. Um, for the first few months following COVID, we didn't even know what that was. And it's now a lot more understood. And I've shared previously about how it ebbs and flows usually with my cycle. So for me, um, when the vaccine information first came out, we knew that the mRNA vaccines had a chance of helping long haulers. And it wasn't known until later that the J&J &J one did as well. But for me, I was like, 
all in, like hand raised, yeah. like sign me up. Because for me, that's a treatment for a condition that I've had for a year, not just that it could also help with continued immunity from variants and those sorts of things. But for me, it was like, I want to make sure that if there's a possibility that I could heal the long haulers that I've been dealing with, that it could, that that was my goal. So um, I personally did not have an immediate response. Um, I found that an immediate innate response that so many people have with their first shot, like a sore arm, did not happen to me at all. I was a little bit um, dehydrated the next morning. Like I felt a little hungover. I just drank some water and then I felt fine. I didn't have any response at all until one week later um, when what kicked in like almost felt like COVID was back. I, I genuinely... Weird. I genuinely for about 24 hours thought that I had COVID again and I was freaking out and I was telling yeah. Matt and Matt's like, calm down. You're fine. Like, no, you don't. And then I remembered that, oh, this could be the vaccine presenting as fighting a virus still mm-hmm. alive inside me. And so it was um, the better part of a week. I want to say like four or five days where um, I was in bed, exhausted and sore. I had a slight cough. I did not have a fever, but I didn't really have a fever the first time either. And it was, it literally felt like I had it again, but it passed within, I was in bed for two days, but then I was just like sore and tired for a couple of more after that. And I really just focused on resting and healing and <laughs> doing everything that I could to support my body, as we've talked about previously. Um, and so then I felt you know, fine until my second shot. And I wasn't quite sure what would happen because again, my case is unique. Would I have um, a response? And I did. I had a very typical response like most people get with um, my second shot. And in this case, my arm was slightly sore, not extremely, but slightly sore, um, you know, kind of immediately following. And within four to six hours, I did end up feeling like that woozy, foggy feeling. Um, I've I also have had vertigo before. It feels kind of similar to that. And then I woke up with flu-like symptoms, tired, sore, slight fever, on and off. My fever would go. And it passed within about 36 hours. Um, Mm -hmm. The difference between the first response and the second for me really had to do with the shortness of breath and the cough. So after my first one, um, a week later, I had those symptoms, which is not typical and is they're not, not they're not they're not associated yes exactly yeah. with with the vaccine so to me that tells me it was something about what was already still in my body yeah. from you may have prior. had a persistent infection and yes. that might have been driving long haulers exactly I mean, so I fingers think crossed an explanation anyways right yeah my fingers crossed that that's what it was because I that mean, would you won't mean really know for a little while yet exactly but. Um, and also because it ebbs and flows with my cycle, um, I did, I was also menstruating at the time that I got my second vaccine, which, so I did have kind of brain fog that lasted beyond that 36 hours, but that could be completely unrelated to the vaccine because that normally happens for me with long haulers. So I'm hoping as I cycle, you know, the next month or two that I might see an improvement in my symptoms. Again, if you could see me like everything that's on my body is <laughs> crossed right now. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think what was kind of interesting is we were going through it together because we happened to be getting our shots around the same time as mm-hmm. you were asking me about what I was feeling and symptoms. And at the time that I had it versus when I got my shot to both expect 
what you were about to experience and also compare it because we're friends and that's what we do. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think what was relevant was I said to you, I was like, listen, having it is kind of like having a case of vertigo, also having the exhaustion and the like of the flu, having the muscle soreness of like having just done an intense CrossFit competition or workout and like all of that combined for um, what it feels like. And I, I think a lot of people hear well, it's in your lungs and it causes a cough and shortness of breath. And maybe you think about some experience that you had that feels like that. For both Matt and I, it was a lot different. And those those symptoms vary if you go to the CDC website. So our experience isn't going to be the same as somebody else's. But I will say um, when I got the second vaccine, I had all of that again, right? Like those those yeah. side effects, not the shortness of breath, not the cough, but like the vertigo feeling, which also kind of feels like you're drunk and out of control, but without the good stuff of being drunk. <laughs> and okay, then... so I, so I want to make sure, because I think you've used side effects where you meant symptoms, so I want to be really ah, clear for our listeners thank you. Um, that uh, the, the description of cough and shortness of breath is symptoms of having COVID, um, and that you had side effects that included that from the first vaccine, which is not, those are not uh, described side effects from the vaccine. And our working hypothesis is that your there's two possible explanations for long haulers. One is uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, which is an autoimmune disease that very sort of classically has an infectious trigger. And the other one is persistent infection. So some people just might not, uh, for whatever reason, their immune system doesn't quite get rid of it. And then if your immune system is ever a little suppressed, you can get a little extra vi- viral replication and then you can have symptoms again. And so your side effects from the first shot felt a lot like your symptoms from COVID, which may be explained by your long haulers being a persistent infection. And then your side effects from the second shot were much more classic vaccine side effects. Yes. I should have just let you explain it. <laughs> I will say what's interesting is that the the CDC has not known what to do with long haulers because mm-hmm. it is a novel a, a novel virus in general, right? And so we're learning as we go. It's new and we're we're learning about the virus. And so I think there is going to be some guidance based on what I was reading online for long haulers soon that um will be coming from the CDC to medical professionals, which is great. But in the meantime, you know, it's been a year of just trying to do as much as I can to listen to my own body, to rest, to do as much as I can from like a nutrient density and supplement perspective in terms of trying to help my own immune system. And I feel very, very lucky that I had such a mild case and that even my long haulers is mild because I hear cases online about people who are not able to work and whose lives are completely affected, losing their home and different kinds of things, who have extreme, you know, heart conditions and different kinds of things over time. And I just, you know, my heart goes out to all of the people who have experienced this virus because it's not just about um, the the percent of people who get it that might die. To me, it's it's about all of those people who you don't know how it's going to affect you. There are athletes who had extreme mild cases who now have extreme long haulers and who, you know, aren't able to function in their normal way anymore. And I just am grateful that scientists and um, doctors and all these people are doing so much research and trying to figure it out because 
it, there's so much more to it than the simplicity of, well, it's a very low chance or whatever. So to me, that was what was most appealing about the vaccine was trying to help heal a problem that I'd had for a year, which was a different, it was a completely different scenario for you. For sure. So I, uh, as far as I know, I mean, I even did antibody testing last summer just to double, I was really hoping I'd had it already. Um, but as far as I know, I never got infected with COVID-19. Um, I've been basically isolated for the last 14 months and really looking forward to um, seeing people that are not my immediate family. Um, and so I um, booked an appointment Pretty much, um, I got an appointment that was a cancellation. So I had about three hours notice for my first appointment. And it was like two days after the, um, the guide, the like access opened up in my state and I actually qualified. And, um, and so I, when I booked my appointment, I had no idea which vaccine I was going to get. And I would have taken whatever they had for me. It turned out to be Moderna. Um, but I, I was like, just, just hook me up. Like, what, whatever you've got, I feel comfortable getting. And um, after the first shot uh, kicked in about, I would say, four to six hours, I, I had some side effects. Um, I had a quite sore arm. Um, I think my arm was more sore the first time than, the, than after the second shot. Um, I, had, I ran a low-grade fever for maybe like 30 hours. Um, and um, I was quite tired. Um, and, and that was about it from, from the first one, just, you know, tired, quite a sore arm, um, and just a low grade fever. I had some mild chills. So just, um, you know, like all of a sudden I would just start shivering and kind of like get a blanket, but then I would warm up with the blanket. Right. So it just kind of felt like, like my, my body temperature regulation was off. And then by sort of 48 hours, I was totally fine. Um, after the second shot, so my, just based on what I know about my own health history, my first shot, my side effects were, were on the, the more intense side of the spectrum. Um, most people after their first shot, maybe a headache, maybe a little fatigue, um, maybe a sore arm, but most people are having a pretty easy time of the first shot. And then a little bit more side effects of the second. It's not a guarantee. I've talked to plenty of people who had only had side effects from the first and nothing from the second, even though they never had COVID. So um, it's kind of a little bit all over the place. So side effects from the first aren't necessarily predictive of the second, but I had a feeling I was going to be in for it for my second shot. Um, so I batch cooked. Um, I had four days worth of fully prepared food, just <laughs> two minutes on high away from a meal in my fridge. I gave the dog um, some extra long hikes just in case I wasn't able, because my husband and I got our boosters on the same day. Um, so I, I um, took the dog for extra long walks just in case she wasn't going to get a walk for a day or two. And I gave her a bath just in case uh, I was going to spend a lot of time cuddling with her. I wanted her to smell good. And I'm really glad I did all of those things because, uh, oh boy, that second one was uh, quite the experience. So, um, again, it's sort of by three or four hours afterwards, I was starting to feel just sort of weary. Um, and then by the time I went to bed, sort of, uh, eight to 10 hours, I had a fever. Um, I was getting some joint pain, some muscle aches, a headache. Um, 
I had uh, fever and chills. Um, and then by the time I, I've spent the next day in bed, um, I was exhausted. Um, everything hurt. Um, and I had an upset stomach as well. So I didn't want to eat anything. Um, and so it was about 30 hours. So my fever broke overnight the second night. And by the time I woke up the next day, I still had some lingering joint pain for a couple more days, but, and I was a tired sort of quite tired the second day. So I would say it was like two days of, I, I just, you know, one day in bed, one day of, uh, hanging out, but not, you know, giving myself a break, not doing too much. And then two days of lingering joint pain. And then I was totally fine. Um, but that 30 hours, I had a pretty intense 30 hours, uh, while I was running a pretty high fever. And, um, I sort of likened it to having a fibromyalgia flare and flu at the same time. Like that's, it was a pretty intense experience. I don't want uh, my experience. I am like the top percentile in terms of side effect severity. Um, like that is a unusual experience to have side effects that severe. So I don't want side effects to scare anybody. It is a sign that the immune system is doing what it's supposed to. I would hundred percent do it again. If there is a booster, uh, to cover the variants this fall, I will be chomping at the butt to go get it. Um, so like I totally stand by my choice. Um, but I do, you know, I think it's important to be honest about the side effects so that, um, you know, if we've got any listeners who are waiting for their second shot, uh, you know, just a little preparation, right? So think ahead of, you know, if you're going to feel fluish for a day or two, uh, what do you need to do to make that, you know, work in, in your life? Um, so it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was an intense experience. One of the things that I think is really fascinating is... There are some researchers who are postulating, there's there's no data to support this, but I, I find it really, like it makes sense in my brain, that severity of side effects from the vaccine are sort of predictive of how sick you would have been if you'd gotten COVID-19. And I find a lot of comfort in that idea because it kind of justifies all of my choices for the last 14 months um, to, to sort of think that like I had pretty intense 30 hours after that second shot. And that maybe predicts that I would have had a like pretty severe case of COVID-19. That's the, you know, that's been the operating assumption driving a lot of choices for the last 14 months. But it kind of, to me, I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, like there's, there's a, I don't want to call that proof because it's super not proof, but it, it just kind of, it feels affirming. And I, I would say as someone who has been on both sides um, that the reaction that I had after the booster compared to the original defined mild case and subsequent long haulers are night and day. And so if, if given a choice, I personally would have taken the, the vaccine without question in, in both cases, right? Like to yeah. me, if the decision is, should, should I should I be waiting? Do I want to see what happens? I can tell you we're going to talk about what we're seeing is happening and the data that's coming out from people who have had the vaccines are overwhelmingly positive in terms of, you know, long lasting effects and um, low side effects and, um, you know, positive outcomes and all these sort of things. So maybe, Sarah, we can kind of jump into some of the newer data, reminding everyone that we've already talked about 
extensive studies and data from the first four, including um, those, what do you call them? Uh, the opposite of a positive outcome. The um, the negative look, outcomes? Look like at my adverse, brain fog. Adverse, ad- effects. adverse effects. There you go. Yes. My brain fog in action. Um, I, I do want to say one of the things that I really appreciated about the information that you pulled together originally was also talking about those adverse effects. We're not ignoring them. If you don't hear them, it's because they're not here. It's not that we're not covering them on purpose or avoiding them or whatever. We did cover adverse effects in those early shows. And I want to remind people in, that in when a you're huge amount of detail, right? So yeah. when you're making your own informed decision, you can weigh those against the, the opposite, right? The positive outcomes that we're going to also be going into detail here. For sure. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, so um, we've got some some cool new studies as well as some real world data to talk about. But first, I wanted to actually make a clarification because I misspoke on our show last week when I talked about the mRNA vaccines being a slightly altered, their instructions for a slightly altered version of the spike protein. Um, I said it was to maintain post-fusion confirmation, um, but it's actually pre-fusion confirmation. Um, and uh, that makes way more sense. Um, so what that means is, uh, so the, the spike protein binds with, uh, ACE2 receptors in our cells, and then it sort of, uh, changes its shape to release this sort of machinery that helps it enter the cell. And it makes a lot more sense for the mRNA, uh, to, to, um, have those alterations to keep the spike protein maintained in its pre-fusion confirmation because that means the antibodies we're making will more effectively neutralize the coronavirus before it can bind to our cells. So I wanted to I wanted to just clarify um, because I made a mistake last week and I think it's really important to admit when you do that. I I agree, although I never make mistakes. So not once. <laughs> not even <laughs> earlier on the show that you needed to correct. Never. <laughs> Um, so let's talk about the new data on pregnancy and lactation. Cause when we did, when we did, I think it was episode 443, you know, at basically at that point we were able to sort of draw a little bit, right? 27 people in the study. Um, but now there's actually some, some good data. So, um, the community monitoring program is called VSAFE and I highly, highly, recommend everyone who gets the vaccine to sign up for VSAFE. You get a little text message every day for the first week and then every week for a few weeks. And it just says, how are you feeling? You get to pick a smiley face or a frowny face. Um, and then it asks you about side effects. If you've had a fever, it asks you if you've had that. If you've had anything else, there's a there's a place to put in comments. And that um, collection of data is really important and it allowed for a study like this. So they took, um, there was a total of oh, like over 35,000, uh, VSAFE, uh, participants who identified as pregnant and received either the Pfizer or the Moderna, um, 
vaccine. And um, the what they discovered in that was that in terms of pregnancy outcomes, um, there was, they looked at things like preterm birth, small size for gestational age, rates of pregnancy loss, and they basically found similar incidents among those people as uh, what studies have sort of shown that were conducted in general population before the COVID-19 pandemic. So no red flags came out of that data. Um, what they did show was there was a slightly higher frequency of uh, sort of injection site pain, um, but less frequency of headache, muscle aches, chills, and fever in pregnant women compared to um, non-pregnant women. So um, maybe a slightly different set of side effects, but there was basically um, nothing that came came out of this. It basically, you know, there was basically no safety signals that would be worthy of, for example, the pause on the J&J vaccine to go check things out. So that's really good news. Um, there was also a prospective study that was done in pregnancy and lactation. Um, so this is really cool because you're recruiting people into the study and then giving them the vaccine. And then what they actually did was they measured um, antibody production in pregnant and lactating women and showed that it was pretty, um, as actually a little bit higher. Um, so that was also very good, um, higher than people who were getting natural infection, um, pretty similar to non-pregnant lactating women. Um, they actually showed that the antibodies um, were in the umbilical cord blood and in breast milk samples. Um, so there's actually indications that getting the vaccine while pregnant or lactating is protective for the fetus or the baby, which is uh, really exciting results. Um, and they basically showed zero concerns that came up in terms of, um, you know, it was the, sort of the same as normal people, right? So the, the vaccine provides stronger and more durable immunity than natural infection, but it showed no, the vaccines showed no uh, safety signal again, right? Nothing, nothing to be concerned about and may actually help protect the baby, which I think is very cool. Um, can I, can I butt in here to just say yeah. that I, I, a hundred percent also think it's very cool. I don't know listeners how, how much, you know, depending on how long you've been on the show, but I myself was like a, um, a lactation consultant type person, not formally trained, but I was a La Leche leader, La Leche league leader for almost a decade wow. and did Try a lot saying of, that five times right? fast. I know. And did a lot of support with women who, um, needed help. And so one of the things that I always focused on as a leader is how amazing our bodies are at giving immunity to babies who are mm -hmm. born without it, right? And so if I had been lactating at the time of COVID, I would be like over the moon excited about the fact that you can potentially transfer that um, immunity to your child. I also think it's interesting. I know you briefly mentioned that they're supposing this, but I was reading earlier that the first baby has actually been born with COVID antibodies. So it's not just a, a matter of it could, it is now happening. We're, we're seeing that. So I think that that is, um, incredible for what that means for the human species going forward, that we could, um, potentially be able to, 
give our children immunity from the start yeah. is something that I wish I could do, right? Um, I am curious, though, in as you talked about kind of outcomes being comparable to people who aren't pregnant, if we talk about what the outcomes are to people who get COVID while pregnant, oh, yeah. do we have information? Like if we're, uh-huh. if we're kind of thinking about that, do you? Yeah. So, so let's be clear. The, the safety and efficacy data now in pregnant women is comparable to non-pregnant women, but um, pregnancy puts you at greater risk of a more severe COVID-19 infection and mortality from COVID-19 compared to age-matched controls. So the the pregnant women are overall three to three and a half times more likely to require ventilation and 70% more likely to die from COVID than their age and risk factor matched controls. So you know, recall that young women in general are a low risk group. So it's not like the absolute numbers are really high, but it's a lot higher than non-pregnant women. Um, and it's actually worse for um, advanced maternal age pregnancy. So uh, women aged 35 to 44 who are pregnant with COVID-19 are nearly four times more likely to require invasive ventilation and twice as likely to die than non-pregnant women of the same age. So given that uh, pregnancy increases risk for uh, a more severe or fatal case of COVID-19, and there's now some data showing that the vaccines are safe in pregnancy, like it goes from uh, comparing something that is, you know, a, a known, not good fact versus an unknown to now you, now you compare known to known. Um, and suddenly the, the, the cost benefit analysis, um, completely, completely shifts because now we can say there's data showing, uh, that the vaccines are safe for pregnant and lactating women. Um, and certainly pregnancy is a risk factor for a more severe COVID-19. Definitely interesting. I think, um, I haven't even told you this, but my sister just had a baby last week. And oh, so, congratulations. I know, my baby sister just had, and my my son will turn 18 in two years. So it's a little bit of like a, oh my gosh. Um, but yeah, so she, she, you know, had been pregnant during all of this and is now a nursing mom. Her husband is a teacher, so he got the vaccine, but she's been waiting. And I, I'm excited to tell her all of this information because yeah. I... Um, I know that she is uh, a curious learner. And so I know if my sister is wanting this information that I know it'll be helpful for others. So thanks. Thanks for answering my questions (laughs) that I always interject. My own personal, you know, I'm always interjecting my own personal needs. Like, hey, this is, this is information I want to have. Can you answer Kind of the, kind of the whole point of the podcast. Um, So there was also a lactation study that was done in Israel um, where they measured antibodies in breast milk. I think it was like every week after the baby was born. Uh, No, it was every week after the vaccination was what it was. Um, So what they were actually able to show was that um, there is, we form basically two main types of antibodies, IgA and IgG against the the spike protein after vaccination. Um, IgA, whether you get natural infection or you get vaccinated has a shorter lasting like peak, whereas IgG is what sort of stays in the body for a long period of time um, and is part of your like neutralizing antibodies to help, you know, if um, bind with the coronavirus, if you get exposed after getting vaccinated. Um, And what they were able to show was that 
um, even like six weeks out, like 97% of the breast milk samples had protective levels of IgG antibodies in them um, after vaccination. So it was just, you know, uh, a neat study because they put were able to put numbers um, as opposed to like positive or negative, like does it have it, yes or no? Um, but just, you know, more information, more, more published, peer-reviewed, published studies showing um, that uh, that it's kind of how you would expect it from from other um, other infections or other vaccines that we can pass on the immunity through breast milk to our, to our babies. So uh, another study to to put a, a check in the now we have an answer to that question. Absolutely, and I I like the answer. So double check, mm-hmm. gold star. Yeah. So let's talk about real world data. And let's talk about breakthrough infections, because I think breakthrough infections are really important to understand what that is. So recall that when we went through all of the data from the phase two and three clinical trials for both of the mRNA vaccines, that they were roughly 95% effective against symptomatic infection. Um, So they defined infection as either one or two symptoms and a positive test. Um, So one of the things that was part of the sort of discussion among public health officials uh, when, and we talked about this on the show, was, you know, we don't actually know if if the vaccines are basically turning uh, what would have been a moderate or severe infection if you had gotten it to an asymptomatic one, or if it's actually super preventing asymptomatic infections. We had some preliminary data showing that it, it possibly is, but now we have some actual studies, which um, are, are very exciting to actually, they're actually showing that um, these vaccines are incredibly effective at preventing asymptomatic infections as well. Um, but they're not 100%. So there are what are called breakthrough infections. So that basically means you've been vaccinated and you're part of that 5%. Um, and, uh, and you're still able to get infected. Like we expected from the clinical trials, the people who are getting breakthrough infections are mostly having mild cases. Um, but let's go through that data because I think this is really important, not just to understand uh, efficacy, but this data to me is what informs my choices the most going forward. So there was a study run by the CDC of healthcare providers and first responders. So it's basically frontline workers who had not had um, a COVID-19 infection yet, but were um, at high risk of exposure through their jobs. And what they did was they tested them every single week. Um, they got the mRNA vaccines and uh, or a placebo, and they looked at uh, what was the infection rate. And what they were able to show was that um, the, the, there was partial um, effectiveness after just the first dose. So two weeks after the first dose, there was an 80% reduction in all infections. And after, two weeks after the second dose, there was a 90% reduction in all infections. Um, so what was really cool about this, this study was that it captured asymptomatic infections because it just tested all the people in the study every single week. Um, and so we can sort of like, if you kind of compare that with the clinical trials that sort of defined infection as having a symptom, 
um, you can kind of say, well, after the second dose, um, it's say 90% completely effective and about half of the breakthrough cases are going to be asymptomatic. Um, there was a similar study that was actually done out of Mayo Clinic. This one was uh, way, way bigger. They had um, 39,000 people or more than that come, come through. And what they, that's sort of standard procedure um, that if you were going to, um, that you needed to do a COVID-19 test prior to surgery or other procedures that required general anesthetic. And what they did was they had data on, had these people, were they vaccinated? before coming in for their surgery, had they had one dose or had they had two doses. Um, and also what's interesting about this is there's an implication because people are coming in for a procedure um, that it's a more vulnerable population, right? Because you're, you're talking about people with some kind of um, condition, right? Some kind of uh, potentially um, predisposing factor for a more severe case of COVID anyways. So what was fascinating about this study was they showed that if people had had one dose, um, it prevented about 72% of infections, um, uh, and it was all asymptomatic infection. So it's, if you had symptoms, you didn't your your surgery was canceled. So this was only looking at asymptomatic infections, and if you had two doses, um, it reduced asymptomatic infection by about 80%. Um, so all that data is kind of, it's kind of consistent, right? We're, we're, it's a different population. It's only looking at asymptomatic and not symptomatic. But so we can broadly sort of generalize that there's something like a 10 to 20% breakthrough infection rate. Um, probably at least a half, if not three quarters of those are asymptomatic in the vast majority of the remaining um, are mild to moderate, and that is amazing news. That means that we can really get to herd immunity. Um, that means that um, we've got excellent personal protection from the vaccines, not 100%, not perfect, um, but pretty. it's a pretty great number. Um, and it also means that, um, that by getting vaccinated, be, we're we're less likely to pass on, even if we have a breakthrough infection. There's also been data that shows that um, the viral load in these breakthrough infections is lower. So it also means that even if you get a breakthrough infection, you're not as contagious, Not doesn't mean you're not contagious, but you're not as contagious as you would have been if you hadn't been vaccinated. All of that is really good news. Um, and so the, the most recent data that the CDC has reported on breakthrough infections, because they're keeping track of this, um, out of 95 million people who are fully vaccinated, this is data as of April 26th, um, there was uh, the, the number of breakthrough infections was just over 9,000. It's over 9,000! Out of 95 million, um, only 9% um, of those people, so like 835 people, um, had a severe case that required hospitalization. And there have been 132 deaths of people from COVID-19 post-vaccination, and those are ubiquitously in uh, elderly people with multiple, um, multiple uh, health conditions that predispose them to a more severe case of COVID-19. Um, so it's, it's, this is, it's really important to understand 
that this is why, A, we don't want to skip our second dose of the vaccine. This is why we still want to wear masks indoors. Um, and um, we still want to avoid like large gatherings, right? Because our community um, case counts are still too high to be able to do um, contact tracing and contain through behavior. Um, so this is why we can't just aha life is life is normal because i'm i'm vaccinated and i can do all of my normal things um but this is also like a tremendous amount of protection so this is also why it's so important um and this is also really great news in terms of protecting entire communities protecting the most vulnerable in our community it's why it's so important for all of us to to go and don't don't skip the second dose did you know stacy that like Eight percent of people are not showing up for their second dose. I hope that that it's just because they're needing to postpone and schedule another one because that's not. It's not all. So some of it, it's that's that's capturing like I showed up for my appointment and the pharmacy was out or they didn't have the same one, um, and it's still basically that they still haven't approved mixing and matching. Um, mixing and matching should be fine, but you know I understand if there's no data, you you can't. Like there's no data. So it's not, it's not approved to do yet. Um, they are studying it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so it, it, it captures that. And then it also captures all, you know, people get busy, probably a large portion of that are just people who've rescheduled. Yeah. I mean, um, honestly, I'm surprised it's not more than 8% <laughs> given, you know, I, I mean, I personally had a difficult time getting to my second appointment because life, you know, and I needed to yeah. like, Life is a thing. Yes. Make a, make a lot of arrangements to make it happen. So I get it. So, and I just want to emphasize um, for that potentially like small number of people who uh, got the first dose and for whatever reason have skipped their second. Um, now, if you had an allergic reaction to the first, um, it is definitely like what doctors are recommending is skip your second. And for you, you're going to want to wait until the data on mixing and matching uh, comes out. Because if you had an allergic reaction to your first, ideally you would then go uh, to a different platform. Um, so what's causing allergic reactions to the mRNA vaccines is not in the adenovirus vaccines and vice versa. Um, so you're going to wait for that data showing that it's 100% safe or talk to your doctor about it. Um, but that's that's going to be you. But if you are if you have skipped your second dose for a non-severe allergy-related reason, it's really important to know that studies have shown that the amount of neutralizing antibodies that we produce goes up tenfold after the second dose. Um, so that second dose it's not just that it goes from 80 to 90% effective. It, uh, it's dramatically increasing the durability um, and as well as increasing protection against the variants. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's a big deal and it's really important. And uh, again, <laughs> don't let my experience of side effects scare you away because again, I will reiterate, I would do it again in a heartbeat. It's not my favorite day, but it's 100% worth it. I am thinking of the phrase that I tell the kids all the time, like, you get what you get and you don't get upset. <laughs> like, it might be the case that 
there's zero reaction too, right? Mm-hmm. Like there are people out there who don't have any at all. So um, you never know what you're going to get. But I can tell you, having been through both, that uh, I would choose the vaccine side effects any day over getting and dealing with the actual virus and then the long-term effects. So I'm with you on that one. So um, just to wrap up, this this piece of it. Um, excellent data showing that the vaccines really are um, reducing infection. Um, Israel also has published some studies showing um, that uh, viral loads uh, are much lower after vac- um, vaccination, and they have shown, um, I think because they, of all the countries, have the highest percentage of their population vaccinated. Uh, we're, we're trying to catch up, but, you know, we're a, a more populous country uh, here in the United States of America. Um, but, uh, you know, we're also seeing, you know, the, we're seeing even in America, we're, we're, seeing, uh, we're seeing daily case numbers go down. And that is um, largely attributable to the effect of uh, vaccinations. So we just need to keep on keeping on. Um, but yeah, all this data is why uh, CDC guidelines currently are, you know, if you're indoors or a crowded outdoor area where you can't socially distance, it's still prudent to wear a mask, um, you know, and do the other things, right? Hand washing and all that good stuff. Um, and, you know, we're going to be continuing to do that until infection rates are at a low enough level that we can go back to contact tracing every infection. Um, and, uh, and we're, you know, we're at a place where the, the risk of even exposure in our communities is so low because our daily case counts are minuscule. Well, I think it's well-timed with the weather changing and I personally am so excited about the idea that CDC has said, you know, if you're vaccinated and you're outside, you don't need to wear a mask. Like Mm -hmm. being able to be with humans and see their faces is so exciting. And I just want to thank everyone who's participated and, and who are able to make those decisions so that there is hope for kind of getting back to some semblance of pre pandemic like that. I'm holding on hope to the fact that like with the weather with, with the weather being nicer and um, potential for human herd immunity, though we are still very far from it, um, that we can in, in some way be normal again. But that kind of leads me to my follow-up questions, which is that because we aren't at a place where we're at herd immunity because mm-hmm. we need a higher percentage, um, we're starting to see some information and data come out about the variants and um, what does what does all of that mean for us? What what are the updates kind of related to some of that stuff? Yeah. So basically, what we're trying to do is we're racing against the virus. So um, we need different mathematical models will show a different number. So somewhere between seventy to ninety percent of the population needs to be immune. 
um, in order for us to reach herd immunity. And why there's a spread between 70 to 90 percent is because this is a novel virus um, and there are still some things that we don't have really firm numbers on, right? So we don't have a super firm number on percent of breakthrough infections and how contagious somebody is with an asymptomatic breakthrough infection, for example. So um, you have to input numbers into a mathematical model. And uh, if you put in uh, 10% versus 20%, you're going to get a different number come out at, at the other side, right? So um, so that's our current estimates. Um, and um, and what we're trying to do, right, we're trying to get to that point where there's enough people in the population vaccinated that what herd immunity means is it means that if somebody does get the virus, the virus has nowhere to go. So every person that that person encounters while they're contagious is immune. So that virus basically stops. It doesn't become a chain of transmission. So it just, it halts in that one person. There's nowhere for it to go because most of the people are vaccinated. And that's how we protect the vulnerable people in our population who cannot get a vaccine for whatever reason, right? And that's how you even protect people who maybe um, got the vaccine, but otherwise would have been a breakthrough case because um, their immune system just did not did not respond in the, the typical way. And so when enough people are vaccinated, we'll even see breakthrough cases start to come down. And that's because that virus and that one person the chances of you encountering that one person in your day becomes becomes lower because that one person is uh, a much lower frequency event. So that is what we're trying to get to before the virus can accumulate enough mutations that the antibodies that we produce in response to the vaccines are no longer effective enough to prevent illness. And um, this is a very real concern. So we've talked on the show before that this novel coronavirus actually mutates very slowly compared to something like influenza. However, because it's brand new, because um, so many tens of millions of people, uh, hundreds of millions of people in the world have had it now, um, it has so many opportunities to mutate. So we're still seeing the accumulation of uh, a mutation, and in these cases, these are mutations that swap out an amino acid, um, and that um, some of them that are meaningless, and some of them uh, are giving that virus a competitive advantage. So when a mutation gives the virus some kind of advantage, say um, we've got some mutations where it binds to the ACE2 receptor a little bit more strongly, which means that you need to be exposed to less viral particles to achieve an infectious dose. So that effectively means it's more contagious. Um, there are some mutations that mean it replicates a little bit faster. So those, um, those give that, those variants give that virus an advantage and then that, that those mutations become dominant. So that's what we've seen in the B117 variant that was first detected in the United Kingdom that is estimated to be 40 to 80% more contagious. That's what we've seen in B1351 variant that was originally um, isolated in South Africa. Um, that one um, is potentially um, more contagious as well as has a slightly higher mortality rate, um, as well as the P1 variant that was first detected in Brazil. And actually all three of those variants they're called variants of concern. They're not different enough from the original 
uh, strain to, to, to be its own, their own strain. There, it's really just a couple of amino acids different in the spike protein, but it does change the functional dynamics of um, the, the virus spread and its impact on us. So what we know now is that um, the vaccines that we currently have are very effective against the variants. Um, and what, what we know is there's a little bit less, the neutralization is not quite as efficient, but we're producing so many neutralization antibodies after that second dose that we're still able to prevent infection at a very high level from these variants. Um, but the other piece of that is the durability of um, protection against the variants is expected to be shorter. And that's because we sort of know that there's not sort of like perfect binding of the antibodies that we make from the vaccines against these variants. So as our antibody levels start to, to come down, the first, the first versions of uh, the novel coronavirus that we're going to be more susceptible to will be these variants. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, for example, the incredibly high infection rate in India right now is creating another environment where these mutations can accumulate. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to get to a point where we have herd immunity before there's an opportunity for the virus to mutate in such a way that the binding of our antibodies that we make in response to the vaccine no longer is effective enough to prevent infection. So we're, because we're, that, if that happens, we're back to square one. And that is not what I want in my life. I want to get to the other side of this thing. So the good news is the variants of concern right now are covered by the vaccines. Um, the bad news is there's still areas in the world where um, the infection rate is high enough that we need to be worried. It, even all the way over here, right? It just takes one person to get, catch it and travel to bring it over here, right? And if it's not covered by our vaccines and we're starting to return to more normal behaviors, that's a, that's a recipe for a very bad badness. It's a recipe for badness. So um, we're at a point now where um, both uh, Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna are testing a third booster of their vaccines that have been modified to provide better coverage against the variants that are already known. It'll also act as a booster to like, still push out durability of immunity even farther out. Um, and it will give us better protection against those. So our protection against the variants lasts as long as our protection against the original coronavirus. Um, and they're, you know, especially the, the Pfizer CEO has sort of said, you know, he expects the shot to be as early as this fall. Um, and, uh, and we're just sort of waiting for, for that data. Um, but that, that is sort of the, the very likely scenario, um, is going to be that at some point we're going to need a booster to help cover the variants. But this is also why we want to be still making, um, you know, science-backed, informed decisions about our behavior. Um, and, you know, I'm certainly in my life as I return to some of my normal activities and return to the gym and actually <laughs> go to the grocery store, um, I'm still wearing a mask and distancing when possible indoors. 
because I don't want to be a breakthrough case that then gives this infection to someone else. I hear all of that. I think one of the interesting things, um, and I'm just going to be straightforward and say, I know it's later in the notes, but worth talking about right now, because you were talking about these um, interesting things that the um, companies are doing to try to provide boosters. One of the other things that I'm super jazzed to hear about is um, working on medication that would act kind of like a Tamiflu for the flu, Mm -hmm. but that, um, you know, they're testing what the efficacy would be and they're testing the safety right now for essentially antivirals for the virus and that is that is super exciting as well because you would take it at the first sign of symptoms and what that could mean for reduced hospitalization and reduced spread and all that kind of stuff I think the most difficult thing about this virus is that you're contagious before you're symptomatic but that's really promising and exciting information as well so so there's also one that they're testing. I can't remember which one it is. It might be Bam- Bamlanivimab, which is the best drug name ever. <laughs> Not that we're endorsing anything. <laughs> no, I'm just, it's so many awkward syllables. Bamlanivimab. Um, it's just fun to say because it feels like a, a gibberish exercise from like a, a middle school drama class. Um, so... Um, so what they're, there's one that they're actually testing in um, people who have, like there's somebody in the household who has tested positive and they're giving the drug to the other people to prevent infection. Um, so that's kind of a cool, a cool thing as well. Um, so um, let's, why don't we just talk about this here? Um, there's some, um, some really interesting treatments that are, I think, also important for people to know. So the monoclonal antibody treatments, um, they now are, um, they're now all combined. So the original monoclonal antibody treatments um, used to be just one antibody. And then when the variants of concern became the dominant variants, their efficacy dropped. So they're now both mixtures of two different monoclonal antibodies. Uh, That word monoclonal is really important. It means that the antibody can only bind to one thing compared to a polyclonal antibody, which is basically an antibody that can cross-react and can bind to a couple of different things. Um, And so these antibodies are um, extremely effective at just binding with uh, the spike protein of the novel coronavirus. Um, And so it's really important that if you were to to get sick with COVID-19 to ask for it. So one of the challenges with these is that they need to be infused. So they they need to be given by IV. Um, They don't need to be done in the hospital. They can be done in IV centers, Um, but you would need to like go to that IV center for your IV every day for I think they're five day treatments. So there's Eli Lilly's I'm going to say it again because it's just so fun. Bamlamnivimab, which also has tesivimab in it. So it's like two different antibodies. And then Regeneron has two different antibodies. They're called casirivimab and imdemivimab. So um, uh, amazing, amazing names that nobody's going to remember. Just remember Eli Lilly antibody and Regeneron antibody. Um, so those, those are, um, those have emergency use authorization. They're available. Um, so if you got sick, the earlier you get them, the more effective they are, but they're now being even investigated um, as later treatments for people who are 
you know, moving to the ICU and they do still have some efficacy. Um, so that's, a, that's, that's the best we've got right now, but there are some other drugs that are being tested. And again, there's like some, some cool things that would be like Tamiflu, but hopefully better. Tamiflu is really not that efficacious of a, of a medication. Um, so hopefully better than Tamiflu for, for COVID-19. Um, and I think also in here, it's worthwhile to emphasize that there's also some drugs that are still, um, that have no science to support them that are not safe for, for people to just take, um, that are still, um, kind of like spike, you know, basically becoming viral on, on social media as a treatment or prevention, uh, like hydroxychloroquine still in some circles is, um, still getting play, even though it's actually been shown to worsen outcomes. There was that, um, study in South America that was halted because it was worsening outcomes. Um, so it, it's, it's not effective. Um, and there's now ivermectin, which is a anti-parasitic that's only given to humans in like certain circumstances. It's mainly used for animals. It is not a safe drug to just go and take. Um, but it's sort of hit this, um, like again, based on, uh, some person saying something with no science to back it whatsoever. Um, so the, the, Medications that are effective right now are these monoclonal antibody therapies, uh, all of these other things that you're seeing online, um, high-dose vitamin C, none, none of it is effective. And it's one of the reasons why we've actually put together these podcasts um, to really emphasize, you know, we, of course, our entire podcast, um, everything we talk about is about, um, you know, supporting our health naturally, right? Yeah, healthy diet, healthy lifestyle, um, and really understanding what the best choices are on a day-to-day -day basis and making the best choices often as possible, right? Without, uh, without the need for perfection or guilt around making sometimes suboptimal choices. Um, and when it comes to COVID-19, there's been this, um, this, uh, I think desire among communities who, you know, we, we put a lot of effort into being healthy. Um, we're, we're, we're really conscientious about the choices that we're making and we make hard choices often because, um, that's a priority for us to make those better choices, even when they're not as easy or not as delicious as the other choices. And so there's this natural desire that we want to be able to protect ourselves naturally, right? We want to naturally, uh, strengthen our immune systems so that, uh, you know, we'll be protected against COVID-19. And I think it's really important to emphasize that there is no version of a natural something that will protect us against COVID-19. There's no, I work out at the gym this many times a week and therefore I'm invincible. There's no, I take all of these supplements and therefore I'm invincible. Certainly we can, it's still important to, to support our immune systems. It's still important to, to improve our health. We, we know that that potentially can decrease risk for severe disease, but it's not, it's not like if I take all these things, I'm protected. Um, the thing that we can take that will protect us is the vaccine. I'm really glad that you said that. And I wish that I had a mic that I could drop because I, there is no harm in ensuring you are vitamin D sufficient and that you have proper 
vitamin C doses and these different sort of things that I've seen over and over again. But what we know, what we have seen in the scientific literature, what we have seen in case studies time and time again, is that there are incredibly healthy people, athletes, um, doctors, different, different people in and out of our community who, by any definition of the word, would fit an ideological health profile and whom become incredibly affected by this disease, whether it's they're asymptomatic and then they end up having a stroke or whether it's they become um, mild and then they have extreme long haulers or they end up in the hospital and lose their limbs. Like there are cases of all of these things. And if we tell ourselves, well, I eat healthy and therefore um, it won't affect me the way that it's affecting other people, you're not only putting yourself at risk um, you could be a person who is asymptomatic and spreading the virus to people mm-hmm. who are vulnerable. And we've talked about this before on the show. And I just, I want to emphasize what you said, Sarah, because I think it's so important and so powerful and a statement on why we've made a decision that we appear to be very um, alone in the environment of our community and kind of addressing this full on. And what I will say is that the community has been incredible and supportive and encouraging and and sharing of this information. And you listeners, we thank you for being here, wanting to be educated and wanting to learn. Um, But it's been so disappointing to see how many in our community are so willing to just turn a blind eye to the facts and the science that are in front of them and instead be grasping for possible other answers. And it's not that vitamin C and vitamin D aren't great for you. It's that it does not prevent the virus. It does not ensure a positive outcome. And without those things, we need to we need to be doing as much as we can um, within reasonable boundaries and without guilt and stress and all the things that we talk about in the show. Um, but we, we, there's nothing that is going to ensure your safety if you catch this virus and and accept what we've talked about here on the on the show. And even that is percentages and and that sort of stuff, which we're trying to give to you in as um, scientific and unbiased nature as we possibly can. So with that said, I do want to talk about the the, la- the last thing that keeps coming up. Because um, mm-hmm. I know we've kind of like jumped around a little bit on the show, but I know the question that I've been getting so much is about the data that's coming out specific to menstruation irregularities mm-hmm. with vaccine side effects. And and as someone who can tell you that the virus in and of itself is impacting my life, very cyclical around menstruation, it didn't surprise me. But I also did further digging and was like, oh, it's way more than that. And I wish people had this information. So Sarah, <laughs> do you want to provide this incredibly useful information so that people can be informed about what's actually happening? Yes. Um, so, I mean, basically, the the long and the short of it is that uh, menstruation irregularities, which can sort of encompass all different kinds of anything but normal, um, need to be added to the vaccine side effects list. And that this is um, definitely getting more attention from public health officials and researchers and um, medical professionals. So the the awareness is increasing. Um, but uh, we're just going to be ahead of the curve and uh, help our listeners understand this so that you can be aware of it. Um, So uh, it is finally being studied. um, And 
it's kind of, it's not a huge surprise. So we don't have estimated frequency data for the COVID-19 vaccines yet. Um, I'm sure that will come in the next few months. Um, but we do have frequency data from the HPV vaccine, um, which is typically given to young women um, after the age of menses. Um, and so that has been studied. Um, so the frequency of abnormal amounts of menstrual bleeding is about an increase of about 43% of irregular menstruation. The increase is about 29%. Um, and uh, chronic or persistent, uh, so lasting more than one period, basically, um, irregularities is about 41%. Um, so there, this has been studied in that vaccine. There's, you know, recall that as adults, um, you know, as adult women, you know, between uh, our first periods and menopause, there's not a ton of vaccines that we get. So we don't actually have data like this about the flu vaccine. It has been studied, um, but it hasn't, this has not been reported from that vaccine, uh, nor has it been reported from the um, tetanus diphtheria pertussis vaccine, which are the only other ones that would sort of meet any kind of like regular uh, schedule in adult women. Um, but digging into the whys behind this, what's really interesting to me is the mechanism of effect, and it seems to be through cortisol. So um, we've talked about cortisol as the master stress hormone, as well as a circadian rhythm hormone on this show approximately a billion times. Um, but as a quick reminder, there is a, a huge amount of crosstalk between the immune system the HPA axis, the stress axis, between sex hormones and actually also between um, thyroid uh, hormones. So all of those systems are talking to each other and affecting each other. And so we know that menstrual irregularities are caused by dysregulated cortisol, for example, from chronic stress. Um, cortisol also goes up during infection. So it is um, actually the sicker you are, the more cortisol goes up. Um, there are some doctors who are actually looking at measuring cortisol as a way of helping medical decisions in very sick people in hospitals, like separate from COVID-19. So it, that it is a well understood thing. Um, so it's it's quite well understood that menstrual irregularities can happen after infection. It's a normal side effect of the flu, for example, um, and it it kind of spans. The gamut, right? The same gamut that we're seeing people describe from the COVID-19 vaccines. It can pause ovulation and delay your period. It can cause breakthrough bleeding. Um, it can cause uh, amenorrhea, so it can cause you to to temporarily lose your periods. So it basically can cause um, can kind of cause just about any, I mean, wacky thing that can happen. So um, it seems to be modulated through cortisol. What's really interesting is there was um, a clinical trial done in 2017 looking at um, how um, the influenza vaccine impacted uh, women specifically and looked at sex hormones. They have not published the data, but they, uh, through the clinicaltrials.gov registration, they have posted some of their preliminary results. And it's hard to know if there's a statistical significance because of how little of the data they've actually published. But there looks like there might be a slight increase in progesterone sort of throughout the cycle, which totally makes sense 
from a high cortisol perspective. Um, so, um, so that, you know, we know, and, and we can actually, Stacey, you and I did a talk at AHS about how chronic stress leads to hormone imbalance. Um, I have a detailed I mean, article did, on my website. You did a talk. I stood there um, and made a Tired. fool of myself. <laughs> That's not true. That's not true. You contributed excellently, and I remember it differently. Um, but we can also put, I have an article on my website basically talking about the link between cortisol and sex hormone imbalances. We can put a link to that in the show notes. Um, but it's sort of no surprise that when you super ramp up the immune system, that's going to increase cortisol, and then that's going to impact sex hormone regulation, uh, including like at the level of the pituitary gland. So including like luteinizing hormone. So it's it can definitely impact uh, menstruation, and it's it's uh, transient, right? So um, it may impact it, right? The study in the HPV vaccine showed it can impact it for for some months, um, but our our bodies are pretty good at at getting back to, to normal. And I do want to bust the myth of if you live in a house with somebody who got the vaccine and had menstrual irregularities, it's not going to impact your menstruation. The, it, it turns out the whole pheromone sinking thing is not a, it's actually never, it's never been shown in the scientific literature. We don't, we don't sink because of pheromones. It's not a thing. Okay. I'm going to put that over in the moon box for a minute. Okay. Um, <laughs> Just okay. We're just gonna close that lid and put it over here. I am really glad you covered that. I think the other thing that I read about, and maybe you can kind of explain, is that it also is potentially related to platelets, and that might be why people are seeing things. Yeah. Um. So it's not been shown. So there's zero data to support that. Um, it, people are normally having platelet irregularities as a side effect of the COVID-19 vaccine. So um, I think that idea comes from the looking at the immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia, rare side effect of the adenovirus platform vaccines. Um, and that is certainly impacting platelets. Um, but it, there's no data to support that um, other than those cases, which that is a very rare. It's actually an autoimmune disease that also can be normally triggered by infection um, that we talked about last week. There's no evidence that outside of that, that platelets are actually being disrupted by the COVID-19 vaccine. So it seems to be completely mediated through cortisol. That's where there's actually some data to support mechanistically. Interesting. So one would one would assume, although it looks like the number is 40% of people would have it past one cycle, but the goal is that, and honestly, that might be because there's two shots, right? And so mm -hmm. I can see that being a reason as well. But um, I would think that the literature and the data would show over time that this is being phased out as your cortisol is reducing, that you know, you're, you're fighting the infection and then you're getting back to normal because what I've seen a lot on the internet is that you, you take a fragment of the truth with the menstruation and then you extrapolate it to, and therefore it's going to cause fertility problems. And I just want to be very clear that that is not what the science is saying. And so we can look at a mechanism like cortisol, which we know we have control over and that fluctuates in our life all the time through different stressors that we have. Yeah. And we as women know that that affects our cycles, um, that we can say, okay, well, when the cortisol is reduced from that 
reduced um, response to the vaccine that we're going to see a normalization or that we can anticipate a normalization in our cycle for the majority of people. And I don't know what that number is yet because we're still waiting and seeing. I mean, I, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it would be reasonable to expect that your stress levels uh, and so your, your cortisol regulation at baseline is part of the part of the formula, right? So if you are a person who already had dysregulated cortisol, um, you may, it would, it would make sense that you would have, you would be a more likely to have menstrual irregularities and that B, they might last longer because your cortisol wasn't awesome to begin with. Um, so, um, and it's not as simple as, uh, cortisol to, uh, immune system to cortisol to, to sex hormones because the thyroid is in there as, as, as part of, part of the equation too. So, um, so it's, it's just a really complex system, but it's because of that crosstalk that we can point to menstrual irregularities as a anticipated side effect that unfortunately was not, um, considered in the, the phase two, three clinical trials, because I think all of us would have liked that heads up, but we're getting there. We're catching up. It's okay. We'll get there. Well, I, I also want to say this is this is an ongoing issue with medical trials that women's hormones specifically are not something that is um, set aside and, and evaluated. I mean, we see it in medical trials all the time. And so mm -hmm. it doesn't surprise me that we're now pulling this out because when we are creating the list of things that we're asking about in these trials, I guarantee you the reason that it's not listed separately is because it wasn't a question to ask. Yep. And, and maybe that's because they can't ask the question of men and it would skew the results and it has to be the exact same. I don't know. I don't do the medical trials, but we know that this is always an issue. And this goes back to the other um, topic we discussed earlier with pregnancy and with lactation. Like we, we're not studying that specifically both from a risk factor and because it's not a general population, which is what we try to, we, the, <laughs> the government yeah. and the medical professionals are looking at, at that time. And so, I mean, I know for me, I've been saying for a long time, like, tell me specifically what, what women can expect and help me understand from an education perspective, why I'm seeing it so that I don't freak out. And I think that's part of the problem is when you don't, list it as a possibility and you don't explain the why, it is going to cause concern. And I, I appreciate that you took the time to explain it and that the science is showing a direction that explains it in a way that's easy for us to kind of process and say, okay, that's not a long-term fertility issue that's, you know, affecting my DNA and my kid's DNA and, you know, all these things that are being yeah. extrapolated right now. That's just not what we're seeing in the science. So thank you for that. Um, I am curious also, kind of as we're talking about onset of puberty and all of these kinds of things, and you talked about kind of the HPV and when that's administered, I know that we're starting to get approvals for teenagers mm -hmm. um, in some of these vaccines. And um, maybe we could talk a little bit about that as kind of the the, the last and final of things that we think we could possibly address with all of this. And I think it's cute that at the top of your, the show, you were like, I'm, I'm optimistic. This will be the last show. And I'm like, you're delusional. Uh. I think this is the last show, but um, that's with the hope that we can all just move forward. And unfortunately it doesn't look like that's going to happen in the immediate near future. So um, 
Okay, back to the kids. Back to the kids. Let's let's um, hope hopefully preempt a show that just talks about um, the vaccines and kids at least at least in the, the near future. Um, so Pfizer has uh, um, asked for their emergency use authorization to be extended to 12 to 15 year olds uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's expected that they will get that um, extension next week or the week after. So it's 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 coming there. The, the review of the data is almost done. Um, but they, um, had a hundred percent efficacy against symptomatic infection in 12 to 15 year olds, um, and very similar side effects, uh, to the adults. And again, no safety issues that came up, um, com- sort of comparable to the adult study. So, um, what was also cool was they found that, uh, younger adolescents produced more coronavirus antibodies than, so the 12 to 15 year olds produced more antibodies than 16 to 25 year olds, which was the next sort of striated age group. Um, So that's also a fairly good sign that they are going to have even more robust immunity. Um, And so all of that data looks good right now. Um, Moderna is wrapping up their clinical trial in 12 to 17 year olds. So Pfizer included 16 and up for their first uh, trial, and Moderna included 18 and up for their first trial. So right now, if you're 16 or 17, the only vaccine that you can get is the Pfizer. Um, And pretty soon now, if you're 12 to 17, the only vaccine you'll be able to get is Pfizer. Moderna is catching up with a study in 12 to 17-year-olds. So they're probably a month to two months down the pipeline from, from being done. They had a harder time. Uh, filling their study, it had to be bigger because it was a wider age group. So, um, so that data all looks good. Um, we can expect the emergency use authorization to be extended, um, and they are starting their testing in. Um, uh, I think the next striation is six to eleven, um, and then from there it'll go six months to six. Um, but what they are doing in the younger age groups is they go back to a dose response. Um, so it's, you know, it's exactly what we want them to do, right? It's they're being extremely cautious. Um, so they separate out safety and efficacy for those younger younger children. So they go back to a really low dose and look at, you know, does it probably doesn't need to be, they're smaller bodies, right? So it doesn't, probably doesn't need to be the same dose as adults are getting. So they figure out safety up to dose and then they figure out efficacy. So it's going to be a longer a longer process for a vaccine for six months to 11 year olds. I know that my 11 year old will turn 12 uh, this fall before the vaccine is approved for her as an 11 year old. So happy birthday. Um, so, uh, so that's, you know, that's, that's exactly what we want them to do. We want them to be really cautious in, in kids because we love kids. Kids are great. Um, especially I'm quite fond of my own. So um so that's that's where we're at with with um, expanding the eligibility. I also just want to, you know, anecdotally repoint out in case it wasn't obvious that kids can also be carriers, asymptomatic carriers. And so one of the reasons mm-hmm. that it would be ideal to vaccinate kids is even if kids aren't showing symptoms or reacting the way that an adult would we don't know what that looks like long term like we know that 
chicken pox turns into shingles and that that's a problem as an adult. We don't know anything about what this will do yeah. long term to a kid, but we also know that they could be carrying the virus and spreading it and not knowing it because they're often asymptomatic younger kids. The other thing that I've heard, and I don't know if, if you've heard this, again, this is anecdotal information, is that the variants are affecting teenagers in a different way. I have a friend who had an outbreak at her high school and the outbreak from right now versus the outbreak that they had in the school last year is an entirely different way yeah. that it's affecting the children. And so they're actually studying the, the virus that all the kids had and trying to figure out like what variant it might be because it appears that it is learning to give a more strong reaction to yes. younger kids, which is frightening. I, I don't I don't have the numbers in front of me, but um, the this is especially true of the uh, P1 variant that was first identified in Brazil and the B1351 variant that was first identified in South Africa, um, that those variants are skewing the percentage of people with severe um, disease and mortality, especially in younger age groups. So the the um, risk of severe disease or mortality is not that different in um, middle, <clears throat> middle experienced to older experienced adults. Um, <laughs> were, you, were you trying to be polite about oh. how old we are? No, I reject the word middle age. I reject it. I am not. I am middle experienced. Um, so, uh, so, but it's the, the risk of severe infection is about the same compared to sort of like the original, um, variant, uh, but the risk of severe disease seems to be higher than the original variant in, um, children and, and young adults. So, um, yeah, that's a real, it's, a, it's another thing about the variants of concern that, uh, are why the word concern is right in the name. Okay. I feel like we have literally covered anything we could possibly cover as it relates to what we know about the vaccines right now. And I appreciate that our listeners are so inquisitive and that they have additional questions and they hear things on the internet and they're like, this doesn't sound right. I trust Stacy and Sarah to answer them. I'm mm -hmm. going to I'm going to go out on a limb here, Sarah, and we can always, you know, pull this back if you don't agree. But I'm going to say that if you have additional questions, I highly recommend that you submit them through the Patreon show and that maybe what we'll do is that each Patreon we can maybe like quick fire and I'm using quotation marks when I say that because you know that we're terrible at anything quick as evidenced by the show <laughs> but maybe we could um, address some of the myths and additional questions that you feel like you didn't get fully answered in some of those shows I mean we've done six at this point and so we want to also just not engage with things that are made up and infactual and ridiculous um so if ridiculous there's is a better word than what was going through my head okay so if there are things that you see or hear or have questions about and as new information comes out new data comes out we're always here for you listeners but we want to remind you that we really try to engage and answer those questions in our patreon to people who submit questions through that format and we prioritize them over there and that might be a way for us to address myths as they come up because we don't want to we don't just want to constantly 
spend our time on this show talking about what isn't fact. We want to talk about what is fact on this show. Agreed. um, So I just want to thank you for making it through and being here and listening and being educated and being part of a community that um, whether you're thinking about this for yourself or loved ones and um, just putting in the work to be educated and, and being an informed member of the community is so incredibly appreciated. And I want you to know that we appreciate you for doing that. Do you love the Whole View podcast? We'd love for you to leave us a review wherever you listen and share a podcast with your friends and family. And did you know that you can now get exclusive behind the scenes content on Patreon for less than the price of an almond milk matcha a month? Your Patreon membership supports us and gets you access to a monthly bonus episode. But not for kids' ears because our bonus content is explicit. You can find us as The Whole View on Patreon for our real, unfiltered thoughts on this week's episode. Oh my god. You know what? We're gonna we're gonna get to the same spot so much tighter doing it a second time. It's gonna yeah. be good. It's gonna be it's, it's gonna be a better podcast be... because of it. But you realize this is the fourth time I'm starting the show. <laughs> Um, well, third time was not the charm. (laughs) No, three strikes and you're out, I guess, in this case. Oh, don't kick me out. It's going to be good. We're going to be good. It's going to be great. It's going to, it's going to be even better this time. I like your positivity. I have no choice. I'm a little little worried that it's toxic positivity, but I'm just going to move right through. (laughs) You know what? It's like, the choice is... Um, it's not toxic positivity. It is, um, forced positivity. That's a different thing. Um, but the choice is forced positivity or grumpy Sarah. And we don't want grumpy Sarah. No, so, no, we don't. I've, so we're I've just, met we're, her before. She's not my yeah. favorite. No, she's no one's favorite. <laughs> she really, she just, she should live in a closet and. <laughs> oh, don't be, don't say the should word about grumpy Sarah. She just needs a hug. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Grumpy Sarah's favorite song is Nobody Likes Me, Everybody Hates Me, Going <laughs> to the Garden to Eat Worms, Big Fat Juicy Ones. Yeah, that's it. At least so, she sings, you know. That's, yes. That is Grumpy Sarah's one endearing quality. <laughs> <laughs>